next few weeks are going to be kind of interesting as far as the my stand is stuck. It won't go up. Okay, well, whatever. As far as how things are going to kind of knit together sermon-wise, um, I'm going to start this message this morning, but I am not going to be able to finish it. It just isn't going to work out that way. Um, we've been going through the promises that are ours in Christ because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus, right? Amen. And this is, this is no different. This is a promise that God has given to us, and it is the promise of fellowship, but it's a promise that involves more than just fellowship with one another. It's our fellowship with God himself. And so I'm going to kind of introduce it today, and then, well, next week, because Jan and I are, are out of town on, on Saturday, uh, going down south to see Fiddler on the Roof. My daughter is playing... Uh, the part of the oldest girl, um, Zeidel, thank you. Um, and so we're going to go watch her play, and, and Craig's going to preach for me next week. I'll be here to lead worship, but Craig's going to preach for me next week. And then the week after that, folks, is Family Day in the Park. Right, it's coming up fast, okay? So we're going to be over there in the park, right next door, Waller Park, doing our service over there. In fact, we'll have our worship team on stage at, what's it, 9 and 10 in the morning? 10 in the morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to do a full worship set um, that morning. So come and be a part of that, and then stick around and just have fun, because we're there to serve. We're going to, we're going to be setting up all of the games for the, the YMCA, and, and we'll be there to break it all down at the end of the day. And we've got some things going on during the day as well. So come and be a part of that. Come and, and it's a Sunday service day. Rather than Sunday service here, we're going to do service in the park. So Come be a part of that. It's, it's a blast. Been doing this now f- since we got here. The very first time, we didn't have a church yet. We only knew about, oh, maybe seven people uh, when we started here, kind of thing. We, we moved here knowing no one, okay? We met people, kind of thing. But the family day in the park came up, and we had maybe seven people so far that we had met that wanted to be part of the church plant. And so we started that first year with seven people and just went and kind of talked about the church with people and, and served where we could. That's when we found out their games weren't very good, and we decided to build some, and they got real excited about that. So anyways, come and be a part of that. Then after that, Craig, <laughs> Craig's sermon series that he was going to be two sermons is now three sermons long, um, and so he's going to finish up right after that, and then I'm going to finish. I know this is a long way off now. We're talking like six weeks. No, not really quite six weeks, but four weeks from now. I will do part two and three okay, of the promise of fellowship. As I've confessed before, I am a fantasy adventure book reader lover. I just, I love that kind of stuff. I love to read when I'm not reading scripture or some book about our faith. Then I love to read fantasy adventure novels. Growing up, one of my favorite sagas was J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Everybody heard of that one? If you didn't read the book, you probably saw the movies. That trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, begins with a book entitled The Fellowship of the Ring. When you belong to a fellowship, it means you belong to a group of people with shared goals, experiences, and views. In Tolkien's The Lord of the Ring, you had four hobbits, a wizard, a dwarf, an elf, and two men. I told you it was a fantasy adventure book, okay? It's a great example, though, of the fact that there can be great diversity as far as the individuals within a fellowship are concerned. However, they must share some common links in their goals, their experiences, and their views. What brought them together in the book was their common struggle against the evil that was Mordor. 
as members of the body of Christ, the Bible calls us into a fellowship. We are the fellowship of the saved, the fellowship of believers. It is not a fellowship that should be defined solely by our struggle against evil, although that may be some part of it. Our fellowship, rather, is defined by a different goal. It is the goal of relationship. It is the goal of unity with God and with one another. Consider 1 Corinthians 1.9. God, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Do you see the link that, that Paul is establishing here? A group of people in a fellowship with one another, perfectly united in mind and thought. That is the definition of a fellowship. Like Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, sometimes fellowships are broken. Sometimes they get broken by circumstance. Sometimes they get broken by the attacks of the enemy that cause division. And sometimes division comes from within the fellowship as sin causes damage to our relationships. Regardless of the reason for division, we weren't designed for that. We were designed for unity. We were designed for fellowship. We were designed for relationship. We were designed for family. How we develop, nurture, and maintain that fellowship is a measure of our commitment to God and to one another and our mission in this world. Take out your Bibles or grab one from the table and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Our passage this morning is kind of long. Sermon notes. I'm going to pass those out at the end, actually. I have a different idea for your sermon notes this morning. Hopefully, uh, you've got paper. If not, there's paper in the little tubs things. You can try to take notes on that, I guess, the backside. Um, I guess I could pass these out. I, just, I, I kind of wanted to do it at the end because they're really not for notes. They're really for homework. <laughs> I love to teach, you know, and if I can give homework, that's even better. Okay, 1 John. First, first John's way in the back with the minor epistles, okay? Not minor in content, just minor in size, okay? 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet, walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Did you notice how many times the word fellowship showed up in that little passage? I count four times that it showed up. Fellowship first with God, verse 3, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then second, with one another. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The truth of the Christian life is that it is all about relationship. Like real estate is all about geography, okay? All right? The Christian life is all about relationship, relationship, relationship. From the greatest commands, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love one another as yourself. To the fact that we are called the children of God, we are brothers of Christ, joint heirs with Jesus, adopted sons, fellow citizens with God's people, and members of God's household, and literally God's family. It is all about relationship. Recently, Janet and I have been reading a book by the author Danny Silk. It's called Keeping Your Love On. I want to share a story from this book to illustrate a principle about relationships that we need to grab onto in order to have a fellowship that is astounding. This is a real-life story. I think Danny probably changed the names to protect the people who are involved in this story. But he calls them Dave and Ann, so that's what we'll go with. Dave and Ann sat on the couch in my office. Danny, we need you to help us fix our son. After spending one of my parenting classes, the couple had booked an appointment with me and were desperately hoping I might help them rein in their little boy. The young teenager was extremely out of control, causing more chaos than this family could handle. Dave and Ann took turns describing their son's increasingly destructive escapades, which included smoking pot, running away, breaking windows and furniture, and most recently, taking a joyride in the car. It was obvious that they felt hurt, scared, and increasingly powerless over their situation. But something else was going on. I couldn't help but notice that this man and this woman weren't looking at one another at all. When Dave spoke, Anne looked at the floor and vice versa. They were clearly disconnected. And I quickly became convinced that this disconnected relationship, the one between Dave and Anne, was the real problem in this family. After they'd finished their discouraging saga, they looked up, waiting for me to say something. Let me ask you a question, I said, aware that changing the subject would be unexpected. What is the goal of your marriage? Sure enough, Dave and Anne looked surprised, and I was asking a question about them and not their son. Then, as they considered my question, their expression began to follow the classic progression I witness in so many disconnected couples. At first, they looked as though they intended to answer the question, but as they realized they didn't have an answer, they grew concerned and a little distressed. I knew the thoughts that were running through their minds. The goal of my marriage? Have I ever even thought about that before? What does that mean? Finally, Anne asked for clarification. The goal of our marriage, do you mean like, you know, raising our kids, sending them to college, our retirement goals? What do you mean? I gave them a sympathetic smile, then I looked straight at them. I'm not interested in the goal of your retirement, parenting, or finances. I'm asking you what is the goal of your marriage, your relationship. A prolonged and uncomfortable silence filled the room. Finally, Dave offered, 
peace. It would be really nice to have some peace in our marriage. Peace, I responded, thankful for, for the start. Well, okay, okay. Then I turned to Anne, how about you? Well, she muttered, it would be nice to be able to have a conversation once in a while. Peace and conversation, I echoed. These are the goals of your marriage. Okay. I paused for effect before asking my next question. Would I find either or both of these goals in your wedding vows 15 years ago? No, they both admitted, eyes growing wider. Oh, right. So that uh, what you say, the goal of your marriage is right now would be peace and conversation. An awkward silence filled the room again. Neither could answer the question. They didn't know what their current goal was. They didn't know why, how, or when they had become derailed from the goals they had set out with when they first vowed to love one another till death to us part. And what's worse, they weren't conscious of their disconnection. I leaned in closer to them and said, you know, many people have this same problem. They are completely unaware of the goal of a relationship. The truth is that every relationship has one of two goals, connection or disconnection. Hear that, folks, really, seriously. Every relationship has one of two goals, connection or disconnection. These goals are revealed by the skill sets people adopt to achieve them. The current goal in this marriage is distance, I continued. You have developed skill sets around disconnection, around creating a safe distance from one another. Each moment of each day, you are measuring how much distance you need to feel safe around each other. Sometimes the necessary distance is small, and other times it's great. But the current goal is a safe distance, not a safe connection. Dave and Ann nodded their heads in agreement, but neither broke the silence. I let them ponder this diagnosis for a moment, and then I asked them the next important question. Is this the goal you want to keep, or is it another goal that you want to pursue? If you decide to keep distance as your primary goal, then, well, we're done here. You don't need my help in creating distance. You have wonderful distance already without my assistance. I can only help you if you decide you want to pursue a different goal. Now, here's a moment when some couples get offended at where this conversation had got off track. Wait a minute. We're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk about our son. We're not the problem. How did we get on this topic? When this happens, I don't protest. I repeat the offer I laid on the table and some clarification if necessary. I'm asking you to consider the fact that your son is acting out because he is disconnected from you. I believe this disconnection is a symptom of the fact that you two are not connected to one another. That is the problem I am willing to help you with if you want my help. Now, what Danny's talking about here, obviously Dave and Ann's marriage relationship, is one type of relationship. But this, listen, this is the deal with this. The principles of relationship are the same in the kingdom of God. In fact, consider the imagery of the word of God. The scriptures, the Bible is about communicating to us the truths about the kingdom of God, beginning with the nature of God and his relationship to us. In order to understand that relationship, God uses a natural family to give us a word picture of what he's seeking in us. This is a normal way that God communicates with his people. He uses tangible things from the world around us, our temporal experience, if you will, to explain the kingdom of God, 
to explain himself and how he wants to relate to us. The marriage relationship is compared with the relationship of Christ and the church. Our relationship to one another is compared to siblings. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I think there is purpose in God's imagery. How many of you sitting here this morning have experienced a perfect relationship with your brothers and your sisters, a perfect relationship with your husband and wife? Really? Okay. You've never had a disagreement, you never had an argument, never had a difference of opinion, and that never happened, right? Yeah. Families aren't perfect, but they are family. At the end of the day, we're still as related as we were at the beginning of the day. There is a bond that no matter how strained, still links us together. Family relationships, folks, are powerful things. Like anything else, they keep us either soaring like eagles or pecking around on the ground like a bunch of chickens. There are positives, there are negatives. I like the imagery of a family. I like the fact that God has set us into a family, his family, because it means that we we don't get to give up on each other. We're linked together. Like it or not, we're linked together. There is a bond that cannot be dissolved. Like Craig shared last week, that adoption bond in the early church culture was even stronger than a natural family's ties. It was so because to be adopted, you had to be chosen. You don't choose your natural family, right? You kind of get what life hands you, don't you? Most of us would at some point or another like to trade in for a different model. Think of this in spiritual terms with me. You were born into the family of man, right? Your human family. You didn't choose them. By, you got them by virtue of being born into this broken world, and you're part of the species, the human race. Like it or not, you got what you got. But get this. You are adopted into the kingdom of God because you are chosen by God. God chooses you, and you respond to that choice. The Holy Spirit connects us to God, and then he connects us to one another in a family relationship. That connection is what the Bible calls fellowship. And what we do with that connection, that fellowship, makes all the difference. Like in Dave and Ann's story, we are either moving toward connection or disconnection in all of our relationships, including the fellowship that we share here in this house. I want to spend some time talking about how that relationship works or doesn't work, okay? Connects or disconnects us from God and from one another. That's probably the longest intro I've ever done on a sermon, but this is what I want to do. I want to stop and I want to pray that God would speak to us this morning. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, I just want to come before you, recognizing the fact that you are Father. Jesus, you are brother. Holy Spirit, you are constant companion. And in so much as we are connected to you, we are desperately connected to one another. You designed us that way. You designed us for family. You designed us for fellowship. And we need to understand how all that works so that our fellowship can be famous so that we can be, Jesus, what you designed us to be, a picture to the world of what real love looks like. You declared over us that that the world would know us as your disciples by the way that we loved one another, this 
fellowship, this relationship that we have needs to define who we are. And Father, I want desperately for us to be a people that the world looks at and goes, I want to be like them. I want to be a part of them because I see how they love. Open our eyes. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My heartbeat for this body of believers is very simple. I want us to have famous relationships. Famous relationship with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. And I don't leave any one of those out of the picture, okay? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's too important that we know and experience each one of those and that we fall deeply and passionately in love with them as we pursue them. But also that we would have famous relationships with one another, that, as Jesus said, we would be known by how we love one another and that people would know that we're his because of the way we love one another. Over the next few weeks, I want to talk about and move toward having famous relationships. According to Scripture, a famous relationship is one that is all about how we love. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. Because of this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now think about what that means with me for a moment. First, loving one another is not optional. Verse 35, a new command I give you, love one another. There's no hint of this being a nice idea or a gentle suggestion. It's a commandment. That means to not love is breaking a commandment, which is nothing short of sin. Second, this is no casual love either that Jesus is talking about. This isn't like we flippantly use the word love when we talk about our favorite actor, our favorite musician, or our favorite ice cream. Jesus qualifies this commandment to love one another by defining it in his term, not ours. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now think about that for a moment with me. As I have loved you, in order to have famous relationships with one another, in order to have a true fellowship with one another, we have to actually know what Jesus means when he says, as I have loved you. That statement implies that we have more of a factual knowledge of his love for us than we generally do. We have to have this intimate, experiential, working knowledge of his love. Not just about how he loved people. We need to know his love, period. Experiencing it. The Jewish mind never, never separated the idea of cognitive knowledge from experiential knowledge. When you talk about love, in fact, the word yada which I think is really interesting because the Jewish people use yada, yada, yada kind of thing. Actually, yada is the way that God loves. That's what the word means. It is an intimate knowing of one another. In the Old Testament scriptures, we see that Adam knew Eve, right? And she conceived. The word knew there, yada, yada. It's intimate connection with one another. It's, it's a down deep, and it's the same word that the scripture uses of our relationship with God too. 
We're supposed to have this intimate connection with God, and we're supposed to have that intimate connection with one another. That's why John starts this passage with his testimony of being with Jesus. He's talking about his experience, not just his head knowledge about who Jesus is, but his actual experience. Listen, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands touched, that's experience. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And the word there is the logos of life. That is Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that also, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him, and this is the message we declare to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, folks, that is not abstract knowledge about God. This isn't something that John learned from a book or a sermon. This is his personal testimony, his personal experience with Jesus. Literally, this is John's connection to Jesus that he is talking about. His conclusion about Jesus as both man and God is very simple. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. His intimacy with Jesus has brought him to this conclusion. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In the context that we see it here, light and darkness are synonyms for truth and falseness. To paraphrase what John is saying would be to say that God is truth and in him there is no falseness at all. That is the nature of God. That is who I got to know. This is the man that I walked with, talked with, ate with. If we are to know God, we must experience the truth of who he is. To connect with God requires acceptance of his true nature. This is partly why I'm convinced that, you know, experiencing God, connecting with God is a function of a faith that declares the nature of God. That's why I'm very fond of saying God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, right? What am I doing? I'm declaring the very nature of God. God cannot be less than good. Never, ever less than good. Get this, moving toward connection with God is moving toward an understanding and a confident belief in who he is, his very nature, the core of who he is. Now, now John has got this down pretty clear. He's not missing anything. Later on in, in chapter four, he's gonna define God in terms of one word, love. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is truth, and in him there is no falseness at all. And God is love. Moving towards disconnection with God is to adopt or hold to a false image of who he is. Get that? It's not a lot different than our relationships with one another. When we're developing our relationships with one another, if we're unwilling to trust the other person's heart, 
I guarantee what we will do is we will put up walls, barriers, ways to protect our heart, and we will fail to understand the other person. We will assume we know what they're thinking when we don't. We will assume what their heart has pondered or come to when we don't. And when we do that, we begin to erect distance. And we start to practice a set of tools in our relationship with one another. And those tools are the tools of disconnect. How do I keep myself protected? How do I protect my heart to make sure I don't get hurt? It's no different than a child who learns not to put their hand in the flame. Pain is a great teacher. But here's the deal. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you know what comes right before that? My peace I give to you. It is a peace not as the world gives. If we're going to move forward in connection, we have to relearn tools that connect us with one another. How to talk to one another without the barriers going up. This is dynamically true of our relationship with God. If you have a wrong idea of who God is for you, if the God of your picture, your vision, isn't that God who is good all the time, then you're going to develop defensive tools against getting too intimate with God. It's all about what you think. It's what you bring to the table. Uh, theologians call it your prolegomena. That's just a big theological word, and all it means is the thoughts about God that you bring to Scripture, okay? And you weigh those against what you find. Now, if your thoughts about God are incorrect, what you will find is incorrect conclusions. Let's say you, you see God as the cosmic cop that's just waiting for you to break the law so that he can bust you and punish you. If that's your picture of God, you will try to put distance between you and him. That distance can take many forms. Some try to hide their mistakes from God or to justify them before God. Well, that's not so bad, God. Everybody does it. Some try to pretend that God doesn't exist. We call that an atheist. Some try to pretend that God doesn't really care. We call that Gnosticism or an agnostic. By the way, the difference between an atheist and agnostic is that an atheist declares that God doesn't exist. An agnostic says that God does exist, but he's too far removed from us to have any kind of relationship with. In other words, he set the world into motion and he took a vacation, and we're on our own. That's the agnostic thought. Some, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, try to substitute the law of God for the person of God. We would call that person a legalist. You say, well, okay, yeah, but those aren't, aren't believers, right? Well, yes and no. You see, there are plenty of believers today, even, that claim to have faith in God, but they live lives that are little different from an atheist. It's very easy, folks, to pretend that Jesus isn't standing there when you lose your temper and you lash out at someone, isn't it? Is he there? Yeah. Yeah, he is. That's practical atheism. It's pretending that God doesn't exist in that moment. 
It's easy to take the grace of God for granted and believe that my sin doesn't really matter, like the agnostic would believe. God is disconnected. He doesn't really care. It doesn't matter what I do. That's what I would call practical agnosticism. This is like people who see God as a kindly old grandfather. He's, he's, he's a good God. He's disconnected, but he's good. He's the grandfather that, you know, he'll, he gathers up little Johnny, puts him on his lap, right after Johnny has just killed Grandpa's favorite dog, just for spite, okay? And he does it without remorse. But he's a kindly old God, and, you know, he's going to forgive everybody in the end, and, you know, he loves us all, we'll all get to heaven. He's just kind of disconnected from what goes on now, right now. By the way, I, I know that sounds kind of extreme, but consider the fact that Jesus equated hating somebody with murdering them, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of people still do that today. When's the last time you found yourself really not liking somebody, bordering on hate? I, I'd like to take that person out to the woodshed and just clock him, you know? <laughs> Jesus said when we hate, we actually murder. It's not so strange then, is it? God is not a kindly old fool of a grandfather. He is actually a perfect heavenly father. He will do, folks, whatever it takes to get you to let go of your sinful nature, your wrong thinking about him, and that includes disciplining. Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We want to construct rules and checklists to define our relationship with God. And if we do that, then we are practicing a form of legalism that isn't any different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. When we try to define someone's else's relationship with God by those same rules that we've erected for our own life with God, then we are being a Pharisee. Listen, you might think that doesn't exist in the church today. Ah, you know, this legalism thing, you know, we don't share that in this house. I can tell you truthfully, it, it exists everywhere. It's why there are over 50 evangelical churches in this town alone. We've managed to separate our fellowship with one another based on how we view God and our relationship with one another. What's really sad is I've known churches that split over the color of the carpet, which means there were very, very much so deeper issues involved. Those are just the issues they couldn't get over. You know, there's a reason why there are over 1,500 different Baptist denominations in America today. And they're not the only denomination that's got fractured memberships. 
It happens, folks. Every time we judge another person by our relationship with God, and it happens a lot more when our relationship with God is about rules and checklists. You want to live like that, I promise you, you're going to fall into the trap of judging other people by the rules and checklists you've developed for yourself. These are traps. They are the trappings, actually, of religion. Scott Wesley Brown wrote a song back in the 70s. Now, I know most of you aren't old enough to know that, but this song was called, I'm Not Religious, I Just Love the Lord. Isn't that a great title? I'm not religious, I just love the Lord. It was a throw-down, controversial, rock-and-roll, wake-up-the-church call. And yes, I loved it. I just thought it was the greatest song. I played that song over and over on that album until I wore out the album. That's why to this day, when, when religion is substituted for relationship, it's a huge turnoff for me. It just doesn't reflect the heart of God towards us. He wants intimacy, folks. He wants us to want to pursue him, to pursue his presence in our lives. Not just here on Sunday morning either, but on Monday morning too, when the world, you know, is knocking at the door again. You know, and you got to get in the traffic, and you got to go to work, and you got to deal with your boss, and you got to deal with all kinds of things. And moms, you got to deal with the little kids. They're not in nursery anymore, okay? You got to deal with them. You know, I think, I think really the question is this. How do we then, if this is the case, if God wants this intimate relationship with us, if he wants to have something with us that's real and authentic, that is true like he is, he is truth, if he wants to have a relationship with us like that, how do we go about getting there? How do we go about walking into a relationship like that? How do we put down our barriers, cast them aside, what are, what, are, what are the practical ways that we develop true, authentic fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another? And by the way, that's kind of the order that it has to work. I think Jesus spelled that out pretty quickly and pretty easily. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, right? And then there's one like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you get this one right, you'll be able to do the other one. If you don't get this one right, the other one isn't going to come. Okay? If we're to have fellowship with one another, a famous fellowship with one another, one that the, the world looks at and says, I know who they belong to, then we got to get this fellowship going right first. This one has got to be correct. It has got to be in truth. Does that make sense? If that's, if that's the issue, then the question is this. How do we promote intimacy with God? How do we develop a fellowship that is famous? How do we make sure that we're connecting with the truth of who he is for us and who he desires to be for us? How do we get rid of the lies we're believing? And how do we see him clearly? How do we make sure we're moving towards connection and not disconnection? Now, obviously, I don't have time to tackle. It's the Five minutes tell. I don't have time to tackle all of that this morning, and that's why we're going to take a few sermons to get through those areas of fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, because I want this to be not just practical, but experiential as well, okay? I don't want to give you just a bunch of, of thoughts about God and the way that he loves you and the way that we're to love him. I want you to actually experience some of that. This is going to get a little weird, perhaps, 
okay? Because when we're talking about experiencing God, that's not always comfortable for people. But it's what we need to do if we're going to have a famous fellowship with God. In the meantime, this is what I want you to to do. I want to challenge you to do something this week. I have this list, and, and yeah, this is the paper I usually give you to do your notes on, but I, I, did some, I, I did the notes, okay, for you, so to speak. And so, uh, can I get some, Jamie, can you, and maybe, uh, yeah, there we go. Maybe we can get those passed out. This is the deal. I've given you a scripture, just one, okay? Some of you that have gone through SOZO training have seen this before, and, and so it's going to be kind of familiar with you. And I've also given you some questions to think about. And I don't want you to just to write down the first answer that comes to mind. I really want you to ponder this. I really want you to, to meditate on this scripture. Because here's the deal. If we don't understand who God is for us, if we believe a lie, then we're not going to be able to connect right with him. And so you need to actually test yourself here with this scripture. This scripture comes from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Just one verse. It says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, here's the questions out of that that I want you to consider this week. First, do I believe in my heart of hearts that God is with me and God is for me? If I really believe that, how would it change my life? Now, really think about that. The Lord your God is with you. Now, if I really believe that, that he's with me and he's for me, how would that change my life? Question two, do I believe that God dances over me? Where did it say that in that passage? Oh, okay. He will take great delight in you. Okay, in the original language, the Hebrew language, Zephaniah, the word delight actually means to jump and spin around. That's what it means. When a child has delight, what do they do? They dance and they spin and they, they, they can't contain themselves. That's what it's saying about God. He will take great delight in you. Now, get this. Do you believe that God does that over you? That he's so delighted with you that he dances over you? He can't contain himself? See, if you don't believe that, that you're that precious to him, you will put up barriers between his heart and yours. Yeah. Do you believe that God dances over you? Yeah, I had a hard time with that at first, you know? And then God reminded me that that's who I was for my children when they were little. In fact, my children will tell you that despite the fact that a lot of people think I'm a kind of a very serious guy, that they thought I was incredibly funny, you know? Growing up, they would, they would say, no, dad's the funny one. And mom is actually the outgoing one and stuff, and I was kind of the introvert. But when it came to my kids, I literally would do pirouettes down the hallway with them in the whole nine yards. And no, I'm not going to demonstrate. <laughs> Though I'm free to dance in the Lord, Okay. And he reminded me, that's what you did with your children. Why would I not do that for you? Why would I not take that kind of delight in you? God delights in you in that way. Number three, do I believe 
that God intends for me to be restful and peaceful, he will quiet you with his love. God intends for you to live a stress-free life. You're going, no, that ain't my life. (laughs) That is not my life. That wasn't my week, okay? It's not my life. It's not my experience. No, actually, God does intend to quiet you with his love. In fact, you know, just a kind of a, a, a short little testimony Bob shared with me this morning. His week was just horrid. He, he was working 13, 16-hour weeks or, or days, whatever it was kind of thing. Nothing was going right. It just, and the only time he found peace was when he focused on Jesus. He told me that this morning. So I'm, I'm sorry I gave that away, but you know what? Uh, think about that for a minute, though. In the midst of, of, of a very, very stressful, nothing's going right week, Peace comes when we refocus. He put his eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of his faith. And guess what? Joy and peace come from that. And that's exactly what he experienced. That's not something you do just once, as Bob found out this week. 30 minutes later, stress came back, okay? It's something you have to keep doing and doing. But you have to believe that that's what God intends for you. He intends for you to walk in peace and rest because those are weapons against what the enemy is trying to do. You know, stress kills people. Doctors estimate that four out of five people would not be in the hospital today were it not for stress in their life. Enemy loves to stress you out. Loves to get under your skin. Okay, last one. Can I see God rejoicing over me, laughing and singing with delight? What? Uh, Stacy shared, or uh, Craig shared this morning, that God laugh. God loves to laugh. Okay, Jesus, I'm sure, loved to laugh. The scripture tells us that laughter is good medicine. Okay, God loves to laugh. And he's got a great sense of humor. And he loves to sing with delight over you. Now, if you can't picture God singing in delight over you, you probably have a lie. You probably have a wound somewhere in your life that you just need to get a grip on, get rid of, and to understand the truth of who God is for you. If any of these things are not true for you in any way, then you're probably believing a lie concerning the nature of who God is and his desire towards you. The bottom line, the bottom line to experiencing the incredible power, intimacy, and beauty of true fellowship with God is to know his heart towards you. So I'm going to leave you with this one scripture, okay? I just want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Everybody, just close your eyes. I'm going to read to you out of Psalms 103, verses 1 through 19, and I want you to hear God's heartbeat for you this morning. It's a way to to take this into your week. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. 
He does not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how they are formed. He remembers that they are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing in your love towards us. And I do believe, Father, with all my heart, that you dance, you twirl over me. Eh, hard to grab a hold of, Father, I know, but uh, I believe it. I believe it because your word says that it's true. And I believe that your word is true. And Father, bringing that home, though, for us, that's what's going to be important. So, Father, I, I just pray over each and every one that's gathered here this morning that they would actually take seriously the idea of, of taking that sheet home and really considering and meditating on these truths about who you are for us, the way that you love us, adore us, pursue us, delight in us. And, Father, if they find cracks there, things that they don't quite believe or can't wrap their heart around, that you would begin a healing process that restores a right understanding of who you are to each and every one. Because when we begin to understand who you are for us, we begin to have true fellowship with you. And if we have true fellowship with you, we can have true fellowship with one another. And this place can be a house of incredible honor, incredible grace, and most importantly, incredible love. The kind of love that the world looks at and goes, I want that. That's what I'm praying for, Father. That's what we're going for. Nothing less than true fellowship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.